Welcome to Bible Over Brews. Deep thoughts fermented over time and text. I'm Aaron Crew Juice Viverka. We've got Mike. Hi, everyone. Gumby. Hey, what's up? Steve. I'm back. And David J. LaGuardia. It's good to be here. And Dave works. <laughs> we'll be talking about the temple tonight after we introduce our first beer and talk to Dave for a little bit. So we are going to be hitting Noble Beast. Capitan Altbia. Everybody, well said. Have a seat. Well, thank you. It's 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 the it's the German in me. Ah, <laughs> Captain Old Beer. That's what it means. This beer looks bronzy, and that's ooh, yeah. Right from the get go, it's got a beautiful color to it. It's like this copperish, copperish tone, uh, clear. And, what a uh, fine, Mike. Nice. Yeah, it's real good. creamy. It's it is smooth. very creamy. That's very smooth. It's it's reminiscent of oh what am I thinking of what am I thinking of Gumby help me <laughs> oh man I can't <laughs> I remember something like oh you know what this is like one the one of the platform ones yes. okay yeah the Clevelander that's it yep this is really good yeah it's it's got that nice deep rich amber color though yeah it's a five and a half percent ABV and a thirty eight IBU so. Nothing that's going to knock your socks off, but uh, definitely refreshing, soothing taste. I like it. Not too foamy, but delicious. Good pick, Mike. Thanks. What is the name of this place again? This is Noble Beast. Noble Beast. Yeah. Oh, man. You should know with a name like that, it's going to be a good beer. Yeah. I'm not. This must be a newer place, huh? Yeah, I can't remember which brewery he stemmed off of, but he branched off. He wanted to get down to a precise the science behind alcohol and um, or brewing, and uh, so I don't know exactly. He's got a history. I'm sure it's interesting if you look it up. I, I don't have it memorized, but uh, the the name and and the fact that he focused on precision is what allured me to go there and, and check these out. So I could tell. I could definitely tell it was a uh, a newer brewery. Their website only has the most basic of information. Um, their Facebook page has a lot more information on it, though. So if you would like to check them out, I would highly suggest going to their Facebook page because it actually has the beer list on it. Uh, it has, it has uh, a light menu. So it's nice. pretty cool. You said this is walk five, over five there, five? right yeah, from the studio. Not <laughs> yeah, not bad. And uh, it's one of their standards. So the two we'll be reviewing tonight are year-round. Um, they have three year-round, and then the rest are weekly so you always get something new if you go there it's a nice place too yeah oh wow maybe monthly i could be wrong but either way are they open for lunch mike that i don't i don't know the hours um, i think they are open for lunch yeah, yeah they have a yeah you've been right it's a really yeah. cool place if you're local to the area or if you're just traveling through uh check them out lakeside and around 14th it's in right. a, it's a business short district walk from so. my studio yeah i think they get a lot of college uh Probably patrons. Probably a lot of Cleveland State. Cleveland State, um, but it's in the business section, so not too rowdy. As when I went, it was really nice. Yeah, I know that uh, I can definitely eat there because when I pulled reviews up, I saw they had a veggie sandwich. There you go. <laughs> it's uh, mandatory now. I think there's a lot of you with all the vegans and vegetarians around now. I think you kind of got to. Yeah. So and the the reviewers said it was delicious. Oh, good. Yeah, I can't find anything wrong with this beer right now. Real smooth. Yeah. No, it's, it's it's a great beer. Yeah, it's well balanced. Yep. <laughs> so, Mr. LaGuardia, <laughs> David J. Dave, Dave J. 
<laughs> Please tell us about yourself. Uh, yeah, I grew up in northeastern Ohio. Um, I have three little kids, so that's kind of my connection here. Um, that's right. Talking deep thoughts with Gumby, Jennifer, Mike, Pastor Charlie. Um, watching, watching, you know, young kids play softball. So, uh, yeah, he coached our young ones, Alex and uh, I think Luke and Patrick. I think Luke, but did Patrick go through too? Or Patrick he, started he, with he, us. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, it's a, it's it's been really awesome. You know, just cool being a part of that community of of Grace Church. Um, you know, for the last four years, you know, getting to hang out with some real cool people. Yeah. That's so, awesome. Yeah, that's likewise, awesome. likewise. That's and awesome. he's a great coach too, by the way. <laughs> Learned a lot from you because <laughs> I had a lot to learn, uh, both Charlie and me. <laughs> I, I faked it all. <laughs> no, get out of here. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, and I, I teach theology. I'm Roman Catholic. I teach at a Jesuit school who are an order of uh, Catholic priests. Um, specifically, I teach social justice. Um, which I, I like, and I, I think, for me, one of the things that I love about social justice is it is a very interdenominational and really even an interreligious subject matter. Um, you know, you, I, I always kind of like to take the big picture of the last 150 years, mm. and, you know, you have Tolstoy, who inspired... Gandhi, you know, obviously Jesus an inspiration of both as well. Gandhi being Hindu, you know, Gandhi inspiring Martin Luther King, you know, Martin Luther King nominated Thich Nhat Hanh, who is a Buddhist for Nobel Peace. You know, so I, I think, you know, when you look at so many of the traditions, you know, we're all saying love, we're all saying compassion, mm. we're all saying the golden rule, and sadly we just don't always yeah. do it. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's and, and honestly, just being a part of that team, you know, over the last few years, it's That's been really awesome. cool finding a lot of kindred spirits and people who just are about treating people right, you know. You just wrote a book. And I did, is yeah. That, is that some of the stuff that's in your book? Yeah, so the book is, it's not theology. It's it's more, I, I would say, spirituality. Mm. Um, and, you know, it, it started with kind of an observation for me where I, I've studied a lot of Buddhism and it, there's, a, you know, Buddhism kind of starts more with that turn inward, you know, and, and observing, you know, kind of the human condition. And, uh, but it's not a theistic tradition, not in the sense that Christianity is. Mm. Um, but I was struck just by the idea that, you know, Christianity, which is theistic, you know, Buddhism, which... It's not really theistic, though they do at times talk about gods in some of their scriptures. Um, both agree. None of us are God. You know, and, yeah. and you know, I, my life has been a great teacher in, you know, realizing I don't always get my way and, you know, all the problems that go with thinking I should get my way, you know, and yeah. um, the fears, the anxieties, the anger that attachment to our, our way creates, but also, you know, the harm it sometimes leads us to to do to others you know because we assume our interests are right you know at times 
but don't always consider what those interests do to other people. Well, yeah. that's isn't that what uh, what a lot of uh, Buddhism attributes the problems of this world to is attachment. Right. Yeah. That's a good point. And and Great certainly point. that's an element of Christianity as well. I mean, I think you know the there's a, a strong letting go element you know within the the Gospels and oh for evangelicals. <laughs> <laughs> listening now, yes, there is some common commonality between Buddhism and Christianity. <laughs> Not to mention even, uh, even Taoism. Yeah, and don't unsubscribe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In fact, uh, Father Thomas Merton was a Taoist philosopher, as was C.S. Lewis. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. Well, and even within Catholicism, you know, some of these, you know, certainly Thomas Merton at times probably got himself into some trouble. So, you know, <laughs> you know, you have... In, in my tradition, a lot of some gray area here where, sure. you know, some of this stuff would certainly be debated. And that's why, you know, it's really important for me to say it's it's not theology because, yeah. um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of interested in a question of, you know, looking at the world and the suffering and the hurting and, you know, how can our faith lead us to, to you know, promote well-being. And, and that jumped right out at the beginning of your book and I, it, it did grab me. And that's that's really awesome. And this isn't just a shameless plug, but you can get it off Amazon too. You can download it. <laughs> you can get it on Kindle for like six ninety nine. Yep. <laughs> or if you see me, I'll just give you a copy. <laughs> well, you can we'll sign it too. We'll get it signed. That's right. <laughs> and I have a copy for Aaron and Steve in the well, in the van. Well, thank you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Or awesome. privileged. To if have you want it after this is all over. No, <laughs> oh, definitely. No, definitely. no. We 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 hear our. As we say, we, we, we hear comments and, you know, of, of other Christian brothers and sisters and that we, well, not with the intention to offend them in any way, but sometimes we get so stuck in our ways that we get stuck. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, so what we do is we, we hit those gray areas and to realize that, you know, and these are things that we wrestle with each and every one of us that wrestle with. And as we, and this is how we wrestle through it, but what is the actual truth of this? And then how does that relate to our relationship with, with Jesus? Yeah. That's well, good. and that's, the, the problem is, is that quest, Christians, especially in, in, among the Western branches, um, Christians have such a boxed-in view of God that if you look at anything outside of strict Western Christianity, they're going to question whether or not you're saved, right? Uh, take take uh, Hank Hanegraaff recently, right? Yeah. Hank Hanegraaff converted to Eastern Orthodox, and he has got any, everything from people saying, oh, well, you know, you're not saved, to others calling him a Satanist. I mean, it's it's bad, and people mm. don't realize, hey, guys, that's that's Christianity too. Um, but even going past that, I mean, if God's so small that he has to live inside that box, I mean, Paul, Paul was able to pull from various poets and philosophers while he was teaching because he realized that God is so big, he reaches out across every culture. You know, in, uh, in China, they have Shangdi. Shangdi, to this day, is the term they use for God because he's the reflection of how God manifested himself before Christians showed up there. I mean, it's, it's fascinating the reach that has gone out, and he's put out 
um, in the the lack of any of the Christian body being there to help. He he has been there manifest in other cultures. And you are correct in that that we that, and I know I'm very guilty of this. We put God in a very little box, and we forget that He is God, and that and we look at what He what He's done, and He speaks things happen, and for us to say He's just this little, so we're making Him finite, where He's infinite, and. We don't. We can't have a concept of infinite because it's something that never began but yet never ended. He doesn't live on a page. There has to right. be something that unites all of us. I mean, that's there has to be, you know, bigger than what we've had our lenses through here in the past two hundred years. We think that that's it. There's so much more to it. And Even Paul brings it up. I mean, if you go back to Romans one twenty. He says that. All men are can be found guilty for not obeying that common law because all creation has been made manifest to them, and that is the testimony of the Creator. Well, if, if you picture a Venn diagram of all the religions, there's overlapping points. And does that mean the overlapping points that exist in both your religion and another religion can they only count in your religion? No, you can't. You, that is impossible. A, a valid point is a valid point, no matter whether you believe it's truth or not. I think I agree, like, trying to say, I'm right, you're wrong, is such a root problem here. And I, it's a, it becomes a pride thing to where, you know, everybody's saying, well, no, it's my sect of my religion that is flawless. <laughs> and then we're just afraid to admit we can branch out, you know, and agree across lines. But even in the Venn diagram, in the very center is the circle where they all intersect. Yeah. And that is... That's what I'm saying. It has to be. And that's, yeah. as they say, that's the zone. Well, and it's, it's interesting to, to, if you study different traditions, uh, different Christian traditions, you know, Eastern traditions, Judaism, Islam, you'll find there is kind of a common spirituality that shows up called mysticism. And at the core of mysticism, with all these different paths, is kind of this place where they say, you know, we're, we're all connected, you know. And, yeah. and I think, you know, our, our faiths can lead us to that recognition. You know, and the, the flip side is sometimes maybe they can be, you know, the, the word diabolical literally means throwing apart or separating. They can... They can lend themselves to that us and them thinking, you know, and, and allow us to de- devalue certain people. Mm-hmm. No. So. Agreed. Definitely agreed. I had uh, a friend, uh, Mike Polnick, who hopefully will be on the show soon, um, he, uh, comes from the Eastern Orthodox background, and uh, he, he uh, recommended a good book to me uh, based on the similarities between uh, Su- Sufi and uh, and uh, the ancient Orthodox tradition, and it's there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of similarity because that's the the mystical branch of, of Islam is is the Sufi. So it's it's fascinating. Well, you know, some of this, you know, also then just kind of gets into a question of our view of the world. You know, and is 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 the world good? And you know, 
you go back to the creation account. I was kind of laughing to myself earlier when Aaron kind of quoted the Bible, and I thought, as a Catholic, I'll stick out like a sore thumb because I, I, uh, I won't know the Bible. I won't know the, the verse, you know. Um, but, you know, yeah, in the creation accounts, it's always God spoke, there was, you know, and yeah. it's, God said it was good. And, you know, I think it suggests it's all the word of God. You know, the sacred is in the ordinary. Mm. Maybe that might be an interesting thing in relation to the temple in that conversation a little bit later on. Um, That's a good point. But, you know, how we relate to other traditions. Can we find goodness and beauty, you know? I do think, and I know I don't want to delay us from progressing, but... No, um, no, no, please. I think, you know, we've been conditioned as a human race to also be leery of each other. And so we will... If you see something, say something. People, (laughs) People will. It's a strategy to lead with a commonality or a truth to get you on their side. So I think we're so afraid of being sold snake oil or something, mm. you know, that it, we do. I mean, when I was first becoming a Christian, I was so literal and I was afraid not to deviate at all because it was scary ground. And what am I going to fall into? Next thing you know, I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to be following Hale Bob Comet or something, you know. <laughs> and it's it's just I see how scary it is and I just want to say as the Libra in the room, I'm going to look at both sides and probably sit on the fence quite a bit, <laughs> but I'll speak for those who are a little timid. I'm taking well, I, your beer, Mike. <laughs> I agree with that, though. I agree. I was taught when I was young, um, and my parents would tell me, well, don't read stuff from other religions because you might be, dis- you know, might be persuaded to you know, venture out in that direction or dissuaded away from your own. So, yeah, it was, I, I was in that same boat as you. Yeah. Um, and and actually, a good, a great, a great Christian apologist, uh, John Lennox, awesome guy to listen to. Incredible debater. Right. <laughs> um, his parents took the opposite approach. They knew they were bringing him upright, and so he takes tells an interesting story about when uh, uh, his his father said, "Hey, hey, hey, you know those uh, those communists, and they wrote that that book and stuff." And he's like, "Well, yeah." He's like. Hey, you should read that. Just, you know, you need to know what other people think. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know. Well, we think we need to defend God, you know, and and yeah. we're the one that's going to convert people or, you know, we should just trust God will show up. And probably we should be introducing new Christians to that philosophy. Like, yeah, don't be afraid. God's with you. If you are looking into things, if you really focus on the core of your relationship with God— how can you be steered wrong at that point? Yeah. And that's why a great social lubricant is beer. <laughs> this beer. Well done, Gumby. Because, <laughs> you know, it might open up the mind just a wee bit. Just a little bit. It helps. It helps. You're saying that, this is similar to peyote? No. <laughs> but, oh, I think another good are point. We crossing, are we crossing? Jumping off what Mike had said there, which is really cool, is how are we to identify with those who who may not necessarily totally, how do we introduce the, our, our God to them without understanding how they think? That's true, and they're probably thinking the same thing. Hmm. Like, man, how could I show those evangelicals <laughs> the truth? Right? You know. And, uh, and, it's, and, it's and the question. discovery that it's, you may find there's so much more commonality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, and it's it's that boxed in thinking, you know, the God lives on the page, et cetera, et cetera, kind of mentality that leads other people, like like Imran Hussein, right, uh, uh, Sheik, yes. the, the Islamic leader over there, to call uh, Western Christians Santa Claus Christians, McDonald's theology, right, and and that's the reason why is because we we box ourselves into this little system, and we can't see God outside of that. Well, that's, let's let's use that as a segue. Yeah, speaking of box. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> so we are talking about the temple tonight. So the temple starts at the tabernacle, which was the, the, the portable, you know. I, I guess it's almost like, uh, like, like one of those uh, little portable houses, right, back in uh, that, that, that people uh, have gotten, you know, very inclined to these days. It's you the know, camper. The tiny houses, tiny oh. houses. My oh, wife yeah. loves tiny houses, right? <laughs> the canned ham camper. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're going to say like a trailer or something. Oh, no, no, yeah, no. I was like, no, no, he's no. comparing Ooh. a tabernacle to an oh. RV. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> okay, it's a double Y. Maybe. Well, <laughs> Maybe. It can move. <laughs> <laughs> my, my wife has this new passion. She loves little tiny houses. She thinks they're they're just the cutest thing. <laughs> they're all the rage. They're all over the yeah, but they're internet. expensive, man. They're like one hundred and thirty thousand dollars for them. Nah, most most of them you can get for under forty. So I don't know which. But ones. you only like it for two years, yeah. and then you're like, this house is too small. <laughs> Kids are huge. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you definitely have to limit yourself when you go shopping, though. Oh yeah, yeah. you have to live like a like a European, right? Mm -hmm. Buy your groceries every day. <laughs> which is actually healthier. <laughs> Good point. So, but on that, okay, not everybody agrees to the tabernacle. I'm going to pop a quote in here from the LBD. That's Lexum. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful system. <laughs> uh, even before the work of Wellhausen, the historical tenability of the priestly tabernacle was doubted. The weight, based on the large amount of gold, silver, and bronze, would make its portability impossible. The craftsmanship necessary to build such an ornate structure during a nomadic journey through the wilderness stretches the imagination. Wellhausen's solution was to understand the tabernacle as a pious fraud. Reading the Jerusalem temple back into the wilderness, wanderings view has continued among those scholars. We have analyzed the literary text of the tabernacle narratives. Cross, the three studies spanning 50 years, has approached the tabernacle from a different angle. He found many parallels in the ancient world and thereby argued for its historical tenability. Many scholars have added to the parallels such as Clifford, Kitchen, and Fleming, and Hofmeyer. Okay, so, so far, what do you think? I've never heard that it was debatable whether, and I mean, I've read and I've always sort of honestly became impatient reading about how much stuff went mm -hmm. into the building of the tabernacle and stuff, but the weight never occurred to me, and that is pretty interesting. I'd like to look at those figures, but I've never heard anybody dispute that that would make it immovable. Well, I mean, think about it. How many people would it... You're talking about a lot of gold, a lot of bronze, tables, uh, a giant tent, all those poles. Uh, I mean, you're, you're, you're pretty much carrying a, a pole barn around with you. Yeah. I mean, it was wood-coated in gold so that would lighten it a little but you're right tables and and things something you don't usually consider doesn't jump off the pages at you so 
valid point to consider. Yeah, that's why not everybody actually believes that it was the dimensions that the text actually says it was. Some have uh, gone to other texts that were around at that time, you know, because we have a lot of ancient texts still from, like, Sumeria, Akkadia, uh, even Canaanite, um, and, and they did have similar systems that were set up, maybe not quite as ornately, but they had similar systems that were set up. So they, they've had to try to cross-check the different cultures to find out if it actually was, you know, viable in its dimensions. Hmm. So fairly interesting. I'm going to skip down a little bit. Uh, Friedman, following Cross, locates the historical origins of the tabernacle in the stories concerning the Tent of David. Friedman uniquely postulates that the tabernacle was brought to Jerusalem and placed in the Holy of Holies under the cherubim until the temple was destroyed in 587 B.C. Crawford has also attempted to sort out the tabernacles to, oh, I'm sorry, the two approaches to the study of the tabernacle and its literary and source-critical settings. He noted both the similarities and dissimilarities between the descendants of the priestly tabernacle and the Jerusalem temple. Crawford suggests that if the Jerusalem temple was a model for the tabernacle, the remodeled temple of King Ahaz was the source, since the number of parallels significantly increased after this period. The later date for this borrowing aligns with his view that the priestly source originated during the reign of King Hezekiah. Lexum Bible Dictionary. So, that probably doesn't clarify much for you. Yeah. <laughs> so, are they saying that the later, less portable version became some of the statistics that they used or description they used for the portable one as well? Exactly. You just nailed it. So what they're saying is they believe that those those dimensions, because let's face it, the texts themselves were probably written down much later. So it was more than likely an oral tradition passed down because in those cultures, the tribes would would reiterate things uh, through language, through poem, through, you know, it, it, was, it was an oral culture, and they would just pass it down from father to son. So some scholars believe that the dimensions of the tribes were reflective of the first temple rather than what the tabernacle's dimensions actually were. In my version of the Bible, it says God said to make it this, and so I would wonder if that oral tradition injected that statement or you know that to me is one of those scary things if the bible says god said who am i to think maybe god didn't say it then i don't know that's that's (laughs) deep thoughts and i think needing uh everybody to be on the same page and having you know everyone agreeing on it uh would be important for those who think that it's important to rebuild it today Right. That it's still necessary. Yeah. Or God well, said for the non-portable, those are the dimensions. Well, and, that, and that's, that's the references to the tabernacle, not to the temples. Okay. So the tabernacle is strictly the tiny house that they took with them on their 40-year journey. The tent, while they were... Uh, right. And then it was set up... In the wilderness. Right. And then when they get to Jerusalem, that's what was set up until they built the temple. So, now mind you, that's also, you know, the portable version as opposed to the one that was set up you know, once they reached their destination. Was the Ark with them too when they did the portable? Yes. Yeah, and you imagine it's not 
they had oxen and things with them. So it's not insurmountable to imagine that sort of technology as heck. They helped build the pyramids. They had this technology of moving large objects across desert. So I wouldn't just throw that out. No, no, wait. Are you sure it was the pyramids? <laughs> what? <laughs> Because, doggone it, I want to believe ancient it. aliens did say. I, was, I, I thought I pronounced, <laughs> I pronounced pyramids wrong. Or <laughs> I was sure we had to go there. <laughs> I mean, they definitely illustrated that it had to be aliens. So I'm not so convinced it was Hebrews. <laughs> Immigration, maybe. maybe those aliens. Well, isn't there <laughs> something about hospitality to the widow, the orphan, and the alien? Right, <laughs> right. right. It's quite, very well quoted. Very well quoted. <laughs> <laughs> Nonetheless, they still picked up a few tools of the trade from the aliens. <laughs> Lasers. <laughs> so I'm going to, um, before we get into the first temple, there is an interesting sidebar. So not everybody believes the first temple was built by Solomon. All right. So some people do believe that there was a priest that existed before that that created the first temple. And that goes all the way back to the story of Abram and Melchizedek. Now, it says that Melchizedek was the king of Salem. Now, people say Salem, but that's an anglicized idea. It's actually pronounced like Salem. Right, I'm not going to get too far into that. <laughs> but um, So he was the king of Salem, which would have been what Jerusalem was called before it was Jerusalem. So he actually did come from that area, that region. So he was probably the priest for El Elyon, like it says inside, uh, I believe it's in Genesis 14, right? Um, it says that he was the priest of El Elyon, and he, that is the high God. That is one of the names for God in the Bible, is El Elyon. So he would have been the priesthood before the Levitical priesthood. And there are scholars, and Josephus is one of those. So if you pop over to the War Book 6, Chapter 10, Josephus wrote, And thus was Jerusalem taken in the second year of the reign of Vespasian, on the eighth day of the month, Gorpius. It had been taken five times before, though this was the second time of its desolation. For Shishak, the king of Egypt, and after him Antiochus, and after him Pompey, and after them Susius, and Herod took the city, but still preserved it. And, but before all these, the king of Babylon conquered it, and made it desolate 1,468 years and six months after it was built. But he who first built it was a potent man among the Canaanites, and is on our tongue called Melchizedek, the righteous king for such really he was, on which account he was there, the first priest of God, and the first temple built there, and called the city Jerusalem, which was formerly called Salem. I'm so. Right? <laughs> so there is an ancient record stating that the first priest among all was Melchizedek. And so the idea is, is that Solomon would have come in and built his temple either on top of or to the dimensions of what Melchizedek had had already built. Hmm. So that's it, fascinating. Yeah, yeah. What, and especially once you get to the New Testament, right? Because it says that inside Hebrews that there had to be 
a new priesthood. The great high priest, yeah. The great high priest who predated, you know, the Levitical priesthood and was heir to the promise, and it calls that priesthood Melchizedek. Yeah. Parallels of Jesus. So it's fascinating that you have a historian as old as Josephus going back and saying that he actually was the first high priest of El Elyon. I mean, that right there just blows my mind. <laughs> you know, I I don't know about you, but that's fascinating. So, so how many times was the temple destroyed then? <laughs> well, Before somebody gets a hint. <laughs> well, that added one. Yeah, I in mean, my mind it was twice already, right? It, it was twice. So, and it never actually says that Melchizedek's temple was destroyed. I, maybe Solomon came in and was really good at remodeling. <laughs> you know, maybe he was the first home on homes. Addition. That is larger <laughs> than the original. He was the early day HGTV. <laughs> right? <laughs> Fascinating. Right, so so maybe it, maybe it was already there. Maybe he used that as the bones of the temple that he was going to build. I mean, ultimately, we'll never really know. It's it's we just have to work with what we have. So, are we thinking that's where the Temple Mount is today? I because would, there are many theologians who never who who don't feel that the Western Wall nah. is part of the Temple. Glad They've you brought that felt up. Like it was a Roman fortress. I'm glad over. you brought that up. That is actually going to come up later. Okay, I won't. <laughs> you didn't hear me say that. <laughs> Forward thinking. It's okay. Impressive. It's okay. That just shows just how far ahead he is. Yeah. Prophetic. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. we'll save that for later. <laughs> so, but there are some discrepancies as well. Um, the reliability of one kings. So the Bible provides the only literature evidence of Solomon's temple. Scholars debate to what extent the Bible description accords with an actual temple in Jerusalem during the reign of Solomon. For example, Van Setters argues that 1 Kings 6-7 is not a historical witness to the Solomon temple. He attributes this passage to the Deuteromistic historian who sought to create ideological continuity through the Davidic monarchy while also suggesting restoration under a Davidic rule reliability of one king's account. The Bible pro- provides the only literary evidence of Solomon's temple. So there, there, is some, uh, there, there is some contextual problems in some of those. Um, there is the one, king, one king's account and chronicles. Um, the chronicler's description of the temple uh, interior differs from the ac- account in one king's in several ways. Now, I'm not going to go through all the ways, <laughs> but if you pull the accounts up, uh, in 2 Chronicles and inside of 1 Kings 7, it does go through and there are things left out on both sides of it. So some scholars debate back and forth whether one was simply uh, going by the second temple's idea. So is it the first temple that we're looking at, or is it the sec- second temple we're looking at? Mm. Is Kings looking at the second temple, or is Chronicles looking at the first temple, or vice versa? So there is some discrepancies back and forth in those texts. Um, that doesn't mean the, the Bible is wrong. <laughs> it just means that we need to figure out what they're describing inside of those. Mm. 
Right, I see Mike's head turning, so I'm going to ask him. Let me ask him to explain what he's thinking. <laughs> I'm just. I always try to first take these questions and think, what is the consequence of this thought? You know, um, to me, it doesn't. I, I see the the pattern here develop in this uh, episode where it is sort of okay. The confusion of two temples, two tabernacles, two time periods in a way. And I can see how that would happen. But part of me is also like always raised to defend the accuracy of scripture and, and to see that, you know, I would hate someone to, to use these things to, to hijack the authenticity of the Bible for sure. So I, I don't think it's critically important, but I do think it's, heck, you know, it would be a great profession to look in and, and get an answer to some of this stuff. Yeah. This, you know, and Gumby, we'll see if I can bring this together. Otherwise, we, you may need to work some uh, editing <laughs> magic here. But uh, it's been a while since I've taught anything with scriptures or took classes back in college. But there is some approach to scripture scholarship that would point to uh, the, the first five books of the Hebrew scriptures as having four different authors, the, the Yahwist, the Elohist, the Priestly, and the Deuteronomist. Yep. And they, they, they get at this because there's, there's different writing styles in different parts. There's different concerns in different parts. And they even use different language for God. So on one level, um, that might explain some discrepancies. And even based on the name, obviously, a priestly author would be more concerned with details about, you know, dimensions where, you know, if I were writing something, you know, I don't, I, like, I, I can't hammer two boards together. I wouldn't, you know, <laughs> I might try to put something down. And I think some of this also kind of goes back to, you know, some of that earlier conversation. You know, do we, do we allow that this sacred story is told through hu- human beings, you know, who are, mm. you know, who are limited. And then the last thing I just add with that is, is that I think that idea of perspective, you know, I think sometimes we come out of a more of a Greek thinking, which, you know, is kind of either or thinking, but just to, to acknowledge perspective, I think doesn't undermine the idea that something's true. It's maybe leads us to say, what truth is this person pointing to? So if we all were to do our, Gumbiology, you know. <laughs> I like this. You know, <laughs> which is a legitimate course in college. Right. <laughs> you know, you might get different images of of who Gumby is, and they would all be true, but they all would reflect a, a perspective. Mm. Right. So, you know, I think that's maybe a way of thinking about it. That, you know, it, it does though then challenge us to say, all right, what is the, what are they pointing to? It. Yeah. You know, what is the the truth, you know, yeah. they're, they're getting at. And, and different scholars do disagree, which is why if you go to the to the second part, it actually does say, in contrast, Bloom views most, not, not Steve. <laughs> it's spelled Bloom, different. <laughs> Bloom views most of the building reports of 1 Kings 6 through 7 as a pre-exilic text, later incorporated by the Deuteronomist. 
He is more optimistic than Fensetters of the historical reliability of 1 Kings 6 through 7 as a description of Solomon's temple based on parallels with the temples in the ancient Near East. So um, now you probably going to be hard pressed to find his works inside um, English Varkari. I think he's a German scholar. Um, you, I'm sure Amazon might have a, a companion in English, but. It's good. He's got good material. He's got really good material. <laughs> so we all need to carve out two hours in the middle of the night to learn German, huh? <laughs> um, I'm already thirty-two percent. Who, who sleeps? Oh, there you go. <laughs> I would just think, like, as I'm powering through reading the Bible from cover to cover, or when I did, it was uh, kind of painstaking to go through these details. And now, for someone to say, well. Maybe God wasn't trying to show you these precise details because it could be one or the other. Mm. That's a little bit kind of go back. So was I looking for God in all the wrong places? You know, like there should I, could there be a really condensed Bible to where you say yeah, this doesn't matter, this doesn't matter, this doesn't matter, this stuff matters. You know, don't say the New Testament. Might we take that back to some of that earlier discussion about God is bigger, yeah. you know, not, and again, you know, even with my wife, sometimes I'm struck by the fact that she's still a mystery, you know, yeah. to me. And, you know, we believe God is the source of, you know, in an inconceivably enormous universe, you know, but we don't always give that space for mystery there too, you know, and that it's, you know, so I wonder if maybe that's a way also of thinking about it. It's like, you know, knowing any person, you know, is always, it's never done, you know? Yeah. Right. The second we think it's done, you know, then we're only seeing our, our thoughts, our judgments. Right. Right. And, and I, I'll add this too. It's not like if you go to both descriptions it's not like the dimensions are actually different at all. It's just that there are certain things inside each one that are not reflected in the other one. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. even though, you know, say the sea basin isn't <clears throat> mentioned in one, it doesn't mean that it wasn't there. Mm. So just because certain items are not listed as being there doesn't mean that they weren't there. It just means that one writer may have had a priority over what was more important to talk about than the other. So, yeah. and, and plus you're talking about two di- different writers. I mean, okay, classic example. If you watch Fox News tomorrow morning <laughs> and you watch CNN tomorrow morning, okay, those stories on the same story are going to sound drastically different. But it's the same story. Great point. All right. But so, even the Gospels are like that, even as the, the book of Jesus. Good example, yeah. So they're taught from four different perspectives. And some things are omitted in some of the Gospels that are in some of the other Gospels. Right. That's true. I think, but to go back to Mike's point, that's why from a New Testament Christian's perspective, that's why understanding the temple is important because we've always been taught from the New Testament Christian upbringing that we are the temple now. So we really want to understand the source of it and what is right. And, you know, and to think, well, what I thought wasn't always right or it could be wrong or it could be this or it could be that, it shakes us up just a little bit, you know, especially, um, you know, in, in light of Christ. But, but Gumby, if, if you're the new temple, then where are the Jews going to sacrifice inside the millennium? 
That's a, it's a little uh, further down the, the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess the omissions of each, that makes sense. But if we're talking different dimensions or even the implausibility of a movable tabernacle, that's where it gets like, hmm, that's interesting. That yeah. just seems to have bigger oh, implications. Yeah, at that point. Especially in light of everything that's happening today in the Middle East. I mean, that yeah. things can be moved around. You know, you don't want to move things around in Jerusalem. Anything. <laughs> Not by niche. All right? Because people are going to get mad no matter which way you move it. And so uh, it, these are important questions. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's, yeah, hearkening back. Let's say, for example, um, when uh, they got to, you know, the Jerusalem area, before they could build the temple, did they put the tabernacle inside Melchizedek's temple. I don't know. Was it just left out? Had it, you know, fallen into disrepair? I don't know. Is there a reason why it wasn't mentioned? Was it perhaps it was uh taken down during a siege? Hmm. We just don't know. We do know it's referenced by historians. So I'll wait for Josephus' next book to come out. <laughs> <laughs> He's been pondering this for quite some time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but his first book's called The War Book? No, no, no. They, he's, got, he's got a bunch of different books. If you go to the, the works of Josephus, they're extensive. They're extensive. He has, I think, seven war books, right? Others, but then he has yeah. also has the histories of the Jews, yeah. right? So, And they're very, very good. They're very detailed, very detail-oriented. Among some, one of the best of the early scholars. Isn't, isn't he, Aaron, one of the... Also, one of the non-biblical references to Jesus. Absolutely, yeah. He yeah. well, he referenced and, and not just Jesus, but other uh, biblical characters as well. Yeah, he's uh, he, he's a good source. And there have been some discrepancies. We should we should probably we should probably do like half an episode. Maybe on a future on a future episode, we'll do uh, part of an episode featuring Josephus to talk a little more extensively about his works because he goes really deep into like the history of the Jews, the wars that they had. Um, I mean, it's, it's in depth. I mean, we could probably do a whole episode on it, really. Interesting side note, when uh, the, uh, who's the prime minister of Israel now? Uh, Netanyahu? Netanyahu, yes. When he went to visit Putin not too long ago, Putin gave him an actual copy, a legitimate, authentic copy of Josephus's, uh, is it 200 years? Oh, wow. Which is interesting because it details, you know, the destruction of the temple. Yeah. It's an interesting book to give. Yeah. Just throwing that out there. Oh, man. That, that's fascinating. I didn't yeah. know about that. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. <laughs> so, now there are some extra biblical evidence. So... Uh, I'm going to read this off. Uh, No material remains have been positively identified with Solomon's temple, and there are no known ancient iconographic depictions of the temple. However, some artifacts bearing the inscription House of Yahweh have been associated with the first temple. An ivory pomegranate purchased by the Israeli Museum, an ostracon from the Musiaf collection, and an ostracon from Arad. Kurowatz notes that the ivory pomegranates and the ostracon from Musiaf collection are believed to be forgeries, and there is not enough evidence to link the ostracon from Arad to Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. 
Despite the lack of evidence, we can gain insight into Solomon's temple by comparing materials and inscriptions of other ancient Near Eastern temples, particularly those in Syria. Two ancient Syrian temples seem to have architectural parallels to Solomon's temple. 1. Building 2 at Tel I am going to skewer this. Tayanat <laughs> relates closely to Solomon's temple in its proportions and basic structure. Building 2 was rectangular temple. Structure entered through a paved courtyard on the short side of the rectangle that led to a stepped porch. The porch was framed by two columns featuring double-lined column bases carved out of basalt stone. The interior of the temple included a room that led to a smaller room believed to have been the sanctuary. And two, the temple at, I am again going to skewer this, <laughs> Andara, shares architectural similarities to Solomon's. It was a rectangular building entered on the shorter side through a columned niche featuring a larger antecella and a smaller cella. Similar to Solomon's temple, the Andara temple had a multi storied gallery or chambers that surrounded the interior rooms and was accessible by a staircase in the antecella, a feature not present in building two at Tel Yenet. So there are extra biblical sources and temples across the Middle East, these two being probably the best examples of I was going to say, did I catch you right? And you said those two were in Syria? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, it's... Uh, when you go back that far in history, it's it's really hard to find really good sources. Yeah. I mean, there's been so much war and destruction, and I mean, people yeah. over there have a tendency to just pull stuff down. So, <laughs> you know, it's it's been hard for people, especially you know, museums and scholars and archaeologists, to find good solid evidence of anything that predates the time of, uh, of Christ. Hmm. So. You know, or, you know, the pyramids. <laughs> a couple less wars uh, would help, right? <laughs> um, but there are a couple of good examples. So they have been able to cross-reference some of, you know, those things. Um, any thoughts on that? No? <laughs> well, just a serious piece. I mean, I think it's important to realize uh, there's so much, uh, you know of our heritage intertwined with Syria. Right. I agree. It's it's a culture-rich part of the earth. Truly. I mean, yeah. that for, you know, Jews, Christians, and Muslims alike. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's so much rich culture and heritage and history that goes along with it. And to see what's, you know, been happening there since, I think, 2012 with the so-called uprising or whatever. Yeah. So, which is way more political than that. I mean, it... But uh, it's really sad to see that. It's, yeah. It's, you know. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, I was talking to someone who had spent time there uh, when he was growing up, and, you know, he was talking about just, you know, his parents would just let him go and wander the city, you know, and, and you know, talked about, you know, that kind of side of it, that, that culture that existed there that, you know, yeah. apart from just the human toll, you know, that that's... Sadly, also, you know, being affected and to yeah. an extent lost. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a shame because there's so many, like I said, rich history and culture that we lose in that. 
Yeah. And in the rubble, they are finding, you know, some artifacts to help, you know, reestablish what was over there. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. Why? Why, <laughs> why, why, why? Right. You know. Speaking of rubble, <laughs> the destruction of Solomon's Temple. <laughs> During the reign of Jehoiakim, the Babylonians captured Jerusalem, took Jehoiakim prisoner, and placed Jehoiakim's uncle, Madaniah, uh, on the throne. Um, Zedekiah rebelled against Babylon, which pro- provoked the Babylonians to lay siege against Judah. Nebuchadnezzar's chief guard, Nabuzaradan, <laughs> destroyed the temple in 587-6. The Babylonian army broke up the bronze items within the temple. And this is the sad part. Once again, here's that destruction, right? Here's the sad part including the pillars, the sea basin, and the stands, and took them along with other temples' uh, items to Babylon. Scripture does not record the fate of the Ark of the Covenant, but we will in a future episode. But Day argues that it was likely destroyed at this time. Following the timeline based on the biblical accounts, the temple stood for nearly 380 years. And I won't go into numerology, but that's actually an interesting number. (laughs) Um, it's, it's, it's sad and, um, and fascinating at the same time, because some of these things actually have turned up, according to some, (laughs) in private museums. Now, we won't know, you know, for sure, unless they come forward, but... Yeah. Reportedly, a few of these items have turned up in private museums. What, Indiana Jones didn't find it? (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) That would be great, though, wouldn't it? (laughs) It's in the Smithsonian. All right, then. Breath (laughs) child. Clear my throat. (laughs) Almost sound like a Rockefeller. Anyway... Join us in part two for the rest of the conversation.